0: Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of Filmjerk.com. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear on the show and haven't done so already, please consider rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcatching source. Good reviews and ratings help independent podcasts like this one stand out from the pack, and it's something you can do while you're listening to the episode. On this episode, our final episode of 2021 We are going to set our way-back machine to take us back 40 years to take a look at what was playing in theaters on Christmas Day, 1981. Maybe not every movie that was playing in theaters, since there were more than 100 movies playing in theaters across the nation that day. But we'll look back at the top 10 box office hits that week, along with a handful of notable titles that were either in limited release in Los Angeles or New York City, or were in regional releases in other major markets. Now, back in 1981, the industry trade publication Variety did not release full box office grosses the way you would expect to see them charted in some kind of order on the numbers or box office mojo today. No, back then, there would be a chart of the top 50 grossing movies in the top 20 major markets, which usually represented by their own admission about one quarter of the nation's theaters. And while there would be a longer article with most of the national grosses buried within each issue, it would be written in a way that would bounce around from movie to movie in no particular order. So to compile a list of the top ten movies would take some time, and some paper and a pencil because you didn't have home computers with an easy-to-use GUI spreadsheet that could sort it all out for you. So here's what I have, the nationwide top ten box office hits of Christmas week, 1981. Neighbors, the Dan Aykroyd-John Belushi comedy from Columbia Pictures, which came in first place with $5.8 million this weekend from 1,406 theaters. The Burt Reynolds-directed crime drama Sharky's Machine from Orion Pictures would come in second with $5 million from 1,408 screens. The raunchy R-rated Chevy Chase comedy Modern Problems from 20th Century Fox would be third with a box office gross of $4.7 million from one thousand one hundred and eleven theaters. The Paul Newman Sally Field newspaper drama Absence of Malice, also from Columbia Pictures, came in fourth place with three point eight million from eight hundred and thirty one theaters. After seven months playing in theaters, Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark from Paramount Pictures was still not only playing in twelve hundred and twenty one theaters, it would come in fifth place this weekend with three point seven million dollars. Taps from 20th Century Fox, came in sixth with $3.3 million from only 486 theaters. Warren Beatty's Reds from Paramount Pictures would come in seventh place with $3.05 million from 665 theaters. Disney's fourth re-release of their 1950 classic animated film Cinderella would gross $3 million from 1,050 theaters, good enough for eighth place. Ghost Story from Universal Pictures would come in ninth place with two point five million dollars from five hundred forty six theaters. And Paramount's Ragtime, an adaptation of the AL Doctoro novel, which would be notable for being the first film to feature screen legend James Cagney since Billy Wilder's hilarious nineteen sixty two comedy one two three would place tenth with two point two six million dollars from four hundred forty four theaters. In 11th place that weekend, just barely missing the top 10, was Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits from Embassy Pictures, with $2.2 million from 891 theaters. And the remainder of the top wide releases would include Herbert Ross's American adaptation of Dennis Potter's Depression-era British musical drama Pennies from Heaven, which had grossed $1.43 million from 450 theaters, the Jane Fonda Chris Christopherson drama Rollover with one point one six million dollars from five hundred sixty theaters, Billy Wilder's final movie, the Jack Lemon Walter Matthau comedy Buddy Buddy, with nine hundred thirteen thousand dollars from six hundred twenty six theaters, and Heartbeeps, the only movie to feature Andy Kaufman in a leading role, with three hundred sixty one thousand dollars from three hundred seventy theaters. Of those movies, the ones that I would highly recommend if you have not seen them yet are Taps, Reds, Pennies from Heaven, and Ragtime. Harold Becker's Taps was at the time heralded as Timothy Hutton's first movie after his Oscar winning role in Robert Redford's Ordinary People the year before. Hutton stars as a cadet at a military academy who leads a student takeover of the campus after it is announced that the school land has been sold to real estate developers. And we'll be closing at the end of the next academic year. Oscar winner George C. Scott co starred as the school's commander, so you've already got two Oscar winners at the top of the cast. But wait until you hear about the other actors for whom this movie was their first major film appearance Evan Handler, who would become more famous in the years to come thanks to his appearances on Sex in the City as Charlotte's husband, and as the bumbling agent Charlie on Californication. Giancarlo Esposito, who would go on to have one of the best careers of anyone involved in the film, from working with Spike Lee on School Days and Do the Right Thing and Mo Better Blues and Malcolm X, to co-starring as Yafet Koto's son and FBI agent Mike Giardello on the best television show ever created, Homicide Life on the Streets, to becoming a major part of two of the biggest television shows of the past 20 years, as Gus Fringe on Breaking Bad and as Moff Gideon on The Mandalorian. TAP's would be the first ever film role for future two-time Oscar-winning actor Sean Penn, and would also be the first major role for future global superstar Tom Cruise. And the film comes most alive when these three actors, Hutton and Penn and Cruise, are on screen together. Their electricity on screen was powerful to watch as a 14-year-old boy in 1981, and it remains powerful 40 years later. I don't know how a 14-year-old in 2021 might react to TAPS today, because of just how much the world has changed between now and then, I guess I'll find out in a couple of years when my now 11-year-old nephew turns 14 in 2024. If you have the Stars streaming service, you can watch Taps right now, at least in December 2021 as I record this, or you can rent it for 3.99 from Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, or YouTube. Reds was the culmination of Warren Beatty's career as an actor and filmmaker. In an age when the average film budget was in the 10 to $15 million million dollar range, Beatty was able to get a major studio like Paramount Pictures to commit $32 million on what would be a three-and-a-quarter hour historical drama about John Reed, the American journalist who would become a major chronicler and participant in the Russian October Revolution in 1917, which would lead to the creation of the Soviet Union. But that's how big a star Warren Beatty was in the late 70s and early 80s. No other personality would dare to make a movie that showed the Soviet Union in a better light than America, especially during the dawn of the Ronald Reagan-led conservative movement in America at the start of the decade. Even Charles Bloodhorn, the head of Paramount Picture owner Gulf and Western, would have second thoughts about making the project after agreeing to make it, offering Warren Beatty $25 million to literally make anything else but this movie. But Beatty was serious about this movie and had spent 10 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money getting testimonials from 32 of Reed's and his companion Louise Bryant's friends and associates about the couple and their activities, including historian Will Durant, novelist Henry Miller, and Roger Nash Baldwin, the founder of the ACLU. For the film... Beatty would gather a number of his actor friends who might not otherwise get involved in a film like this unless it was for their friend Warren. Diane Keaton, who had been involved with Beatty since the end of her relationship with Woody Allen a few years earlier, would be cast as Reed's companion, writer and suffragist Louise Bryant. Jack Nicholson, fresh off working with Stanley Kubrick on The Shining, would sign on as writer Eugene O'Neill. Gene Hackman would be cast in the small but pivotal role of Pete Van Weary and Maureen Stapleton would play the anarchist political writer Emma Goldman. Beatty would also cast a number of non-actors for major roles, including Polish writer Jerzy Kaczynski, whose novel Being There had just been adapted into a movie by Hal Ashby, featuring Peter Sellers in quite possibly his best single role, and American journalist George Plimpton. Beatty spent a year shooting the film starting in August 1979, with locations in Finland standing in for Russia, whose borders were still closed to Western filmmakers. And editing Beatty's footage would begin in January of 1980 while he was still shooting across Europe. It would take nearly two years and almost 65 editors and assistants to whittle down the 463 hours of footage Beatty shot down to a 3-hour and 15-minute narrative. If it were any other filmmaker on the planet, a company like Paramount, would do what is called a platform release for a movie like Red's. Open the movie in one theater each in New York City and Los Angeles the first week, then slowly expand it to Chicago and Toronto and Washington, D.C. week by week, while using the critical accolades and award nominations to drive audience interest. Which, incidentally, was exactly how Universal Studios would open on Golden Pond just five days after Red's was released on December 4th. But if your film is from Warren Beatty, and it's his first film in three years, the follow-up to the immensely popular Heaven Can Wait, you would decide to release it into 389 theaters all across the country and hope the audiences would come out for all the stars involved in the film. And in cities like New York and Los Angeles, that's exactly what would happen. Of the $2.4 million that Reds would gross in its opening weekend from those 389 theaters, 30% 30% of it would come from just Los Angeles in New York City, which would encompass only 17% of the theaters nationwide playing the film. But that wouldn't deter Paramount, who by Christmas Day would expand the film to 665 theaters nationwide. And the film would rack up a number of critical accolades and award nominations. Between December 1981 and March 1982, Reds would be nominated for 54 awards from 12 major guilds and associations, including 12 Oscar nominations. Beatty himself would become the second and, to date, final person to be nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor at the Academy Awards for the same film, after Orson Welles achieved the feat for Citizen Kane in 1941. And while Beatty would win the Oscar for Best Director, one of three awards it would win that night, Reds itself would lose Best Picture to Chariots of Fire. But all those accolades and awards didn't exactly translate to box office magic. While the film would play in theaters for more than a year, more than 75% of the film's $40.38 million box office tally would be earned before the announcement of the Oscar nominations after eight weeks of release. Reds is a towering achievement in filmmaking at once a global epic, an intimate drama, and a documentary about a specific time and place that is now more than a century into our past. And it is currently available to stream for free from DirecTV and HBO Max, or you can rent it for $3 from Amazon, Vudu, or YouTube. Of the films I'm highlighting right now, Pennies from Heaven was the one that would have the hardest time finding an audience. Herbert Ross was one of the best directors working in Hollywood at the time, but he wasn't known for being a specific kind of director. He had previously directed two musicals, 1969's Goodbye Mr. Chips and 1975's Funny Lady, but he was equally adept at comedies like Played Again Sam and The Goodbye Girl, dramas like T.R. Baskin and The Turning Point, and mysteries like The Last of Sheila or The 7% Solution. If anything, Ross would be most tied to Neil Simon, who wrote the Ross-directed movies The Sunshine Boys, The Goodbye Girl, and California Suite. But Pennies of Heaven wasn't like anything Ross had ever directed to that point. It was a romantic, Depression-era-set musical drama, featuring one of the most popular comedic actors of the day, Steve Martin, in his first straight dramatic role. Martin would star as Arthur Parker, a sheet music salesman who is not doing very well at work because of the Depression, and is stuck in an unhappy marriage with a spouse who initially does not support his dream of starting his own business. In his travels, Arthur meets a schoolteacher, Eileen, played by Broadway superstar Bernadette Peters, who not only also starred with Martin in The Jerk two years earlier, but had been in a relationship with the actor since 1977. Arthur and Eileen fall in love, But Arthur soon breaks off the relationship and returns home to his wife. When Eileen discovers she has become pregnant by Arthur, she is fired from her job and ends up becoming involved with Tom, a stylish pimp, played by Christopher Walken, who arranges an abortion for Eileen. Arthur finds himself back in Eileen's area and looks her up, but she is now working for Tom as a prostitute called Lulu. Arthur and Eileen restart their romance, and Arthur leaves his wife. But when a young blind girl Arthur knows is raped and murdered, Arthur's ex-wife sets him up for the fall. It's not exactly the material one would expect from Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters if all you knew of them was their work on The Jerk. And that's one of the reasons the film did not catch on with the audiences in general. The public who wanted and expected nothing more from Steve Martin than The Jerk too weren't ready for a movie that was a depressing drama about bad things that happened to not-so-great people in the middle of the Great Depression, which could breezily flow into the kind of lavish Art Deco musical sequences rarely seen in movies over the previous four decades. Pennies from Heaven was easily one of the most beautiful-looking movies of the year, and the performances were amongst the best of Martin's, Peter's, and Walken's careers. When it opened at the famed Ziegfeld Theater in Manhattan on December 11th, it would gross in a sounding $60,000 its first week. But outside of the Ziegfeld, the film did okay business. And despite mostly positive reviews and a number of industry accolades, including three Golden Globe Gold nominations and three Academy Award nominations, the $22 million production would only gross a little more than $9 million before it left theaters a few months later. The strain of the film's failure would break up Martin and Peter's four-year relationship. Ross would return to the same familiarity of the Neil Simon movies, making two more of those comedies following Penny's, before finding his career's biggest success in 1984 with the Kevin Bacon movie Footloose, which would be followed by an even bigger success three years later when he teamed up with Michael J. Fox for the movie The Secret of My Success. And in 1989 Ross would be behind the camera for another big hit film directing a dream cast of Olympia Dukakis, Sally Field, Daryl Hannah, Shirley MacLaine, Dolly Parton and Julia Roberts for Steel Magnolias. Ross and Steve Martin would team up once more in 1990 for the black comedy My Blue Heaven, which was based on the life of former mobster Henry Hill. Hill of course was the main character in Martin Scorsese's masterpiece from the same year 1990 Goodfellas. And the script for My Blue Heaven was written by Nora Ephron, who was married to the writer of Goodfellas, Nicholas Pileggi. The husband and wife would both interview the real Henry Hill at the same time for their respective projects. And watching the films back-to-back are a wonderful exercise in the juxtaposition of how two people could come up with wildly different stories based on the same information. Pennies from Heaven is available to rent for $2.99 from Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, Redbox, Vudu, or YouTube. I recommend these three films specifically because they are seemingly not held in the same esteem with modern film audiences the way a Raiders of the Lost Ark or even Time Bandits is. And that's not a knock against either Raiders or Time Bandits, both of which are amongst my favorite movies of all times. But let's be honest. Movies directed by Steven Spielberg and Terry Gilliam are going to get far more traction on movie podcasts than movies directed by Harold Becker or Herbert Ross or, yes, even Warren Beatty. Even I'm guilty of devoting more than one episode of this podcast to Steven Spielberg, while never mentioning Herbert Ross even once, until this episode. I've talked more about Alan Smithy, a director who never even existed, than I have about Harold Becker. Milos Forman's Ragtime is a beautiful period piece from one of cinema's greatest directors, made between two of his greatest achievements, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus, both winners of the Best Picture Oscar in 1975 and 1984, respectively. And Ragtime is right up there with those. Howard E. Rollins Jr. stars as a young black pianist in the early 1900s New York City, who becomes embroiled in the lives of an upper-class white family set amongst the racial tensions, infidelity, violence, and other nostalgic events of the day. Many of the characters in Ragtime are based on real people and real situations, although it is not a historically accurate work. And the cast. Oh my goodness, this cast. In addition to being James Cagney's final film appearance, classic cinema is also represented by Bessie Love, Donald O'Connor, and Pat O'Brien, while also showcasing some of future cinema's best actors, including Jeff Daniels, Elizabeth McGovern, Mandy Patinkin, and in his very first feature film performance, Samuel L. Jackson. Others in the cast include Debbie Allen, Fran Drescher, Frankie Faison, Kenneth McMillan, author and occasional actor Norman Mailer, Mary Steenburgen, who was making this movie when she won her Oscar for Melvin and Howard, and as a favor to his Cuckoo's Nest director, Jack Nicholson, who one can briefly glimpse as a pirate on a beach. Maybe it was a matter of timing, going head-to-head against another long-and-sweeping epic film Reds, or that the critical reviews of the day were good, but not great. But the $28 million production of Ragtime would only end up grossing about $21.2 million during its 1981-82 theatrical run. And while it would get eight Oscar nominations, including a Best Supporting Actor nod to Mr. Rollins and a Best Supporting Actress for Miss McGovern, it would end up getting swept in every category it was nominated for. The film is also notable for providing Randy Newman with the first two of his so far 22 Academy Award nominations, one for his ragtime-inspired score and one for the song One More Hour. Newman would be nominated another 12 times over the next 20 years before he finally won an Oscar for his song If I Didn't Have You from 2001's Monsters, Inc. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the show, a popular release pattern for movies expected to be major award contenders, and this is just as true in 2021 as it was in 1981, is to set up a platformer release. So a movie like On Golden Pond, featuring the only on-screen pairing of acting legends Katharine Hepburn and Henry Fonda, as well as the only on-screen pairing of father and daughter Henry and Jane Fonda, opened in three theaters for its first week of release. One theater in New York City, the Cinema One in Midtown Manhattan, one theater in Los Angeles, the Crest in Westwood, and one theater in Toronto, the York. From just these three theaters, On Golden Pond would gross more than $161,000 during the Christmas weekend. And this is from a time when the top ticket price in Los Angeles, New York City, or Toronto was $5. And sure, today, a movie like Spider-Man No Way Home can gross more than $444,000 in three days at a single theater like the Lincoln Square 13 in Manhattan, the second busiest theater in the United States and Canada. But it would need to do that much with up to 20 shows a day across six or seven screens, with ticket prices as low as $10.49 for a child during the first matinee of the day and as high as $26.99 for an adult ticket on their IMAX screen during prime time. Chariots of Fire would only have about five shows per day from each of those three screens. Chariots of Fire, the scrappy little British drama that would go on to win the Best Picture Oscar for 1981, had opened all the way back on September 25th in one theater in, you guessed it, Los Angeles, New York City, and Toronto. And slowly but surely, Warner Brothers would expand the movie week by week, a new city here or a second theater there. By the time Christmas week rolled around, Chariots of Fire had already been in theaters for 13 weeks, but had only been playing in 12 theaters up to that date. For Christmas Day, Warner's would add another 22 screens, and the film would gross more than $357,000 that weekend, for a grand total to that point of nearly $3 million. And while a $3 million gross after 13 weeks doesn't sound like a whole hell of a lot of money, again, ticket prices are three and a half times higher today than they were then, and the average number of screens the film had played on each week over that 13-week period was only seven. We've already gone into greater detail about the movie in our first episode of our four-part miniseries from December 2020 on British film producer David Putnam, in his time as the head of Columbia Pictures, which, at least for me, are the four best episodes from this show to date. So if you haven't done so already, I highly suggest checking those episodes out as soon as you can. Other movies you could have seen in theaters during Christmas week, at least in Los Angeles and or New York City, were, in alphabetical order, Steve Gordon's Arthur the popular Dudley Moore-Liza Minnelli comedy about an alcoholic playboy who finds himself risking losing his $750 million inheritance if he decides to choose a poor waitress to love instead of the wealthy heiress he's been set up with by his father. A surprise hit grossing nearly $100 million, Arthur would also end up with a surprise four Oscar nominations that year, winning for Best Supporting Actor John Gielgud and for Best Song, For the insufferable Arthur's theme, also known as "The Best That You Can Do" by Christopher Cross. Louis Mall's Atlantic City, which had opened in April and was still being showcased in both Los Angeles and New York as a potential awards contender, it would end up getting nominated for five Academy Awards: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Burt Lancaster, his fourth and final Oscar nomination. Best Actress for Susan Sarandon, the first of her five nominations, and Best Original Screenplay, but it would not win any Oscars. It's available to stream on Paramount+. Billy Wilder's Buddy Buddy was the master filmmaker's final movie and was the fourth of nine movies to pair Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau as co-leads. A remake of the 1970 French movie Le Merdure. Released in America two years later as a pain in the ass, Mathau plays a hitman for The Mob, whose life is upended when he is booked into a room at a hotel in Riverside, California, across the street from the courthouse where his next hit needs to take place, and next door to Lemon's suicidal television censor. It's not a good movie, a sad coda to Wilder's incredible career, and Lemon and Mathau, inarguably already cinema's best movie buddy pairing, would go on to do better work in better movies like Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men. But the movie is currently unavailable on any streaming service. Arthur Penn's Four Friends was hailed by a number of critics as one of the best films made about the 1960s. Written by Steve Teshis, who had won an Oscar for writing Breaking Away in 1979, Four Friends follows the adventures of a Yugoslav-born teenager and his American friends as they navigate the upheaval of the decade, with a cast that included Craig Wasson, Jim Metzler, and the late great Glenn Headley. But despite some great reviews, including a number who would say it's Arthur Penn's best film since Bonnie and Clyde, Four Friends would be a flop at theaters and has basically become forgotten. Today, the film is not available on any streaming service and hasn't been available on DVD since a 2005 release. Carl Reitz's The French Lieutenant's Woman, based on the 1969 novel by John Fowles, was rewritten by playwright and screenwriter Harold Pinter, who would help crack the notoriously postmodern novel, full of footnotes and multiple endings, by taking the basic storyline for the novel and turning it into a movie about an actor and an actress who are starring in a film adaptation of Fowles' novel which splits between their on-screen lives as potentially doomed lovers and their off-screen lives as potentially doomed lovers who happen to both be married to other people. The film stars Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons, and it's so simple in its execution that many who have seen it and are unaware of its pedigree don't see how brilliant it truly is. The film would be nominated for five Academy Awards. Streep would receive her third Oscar nomination for her role, her first as a leading actress, but she would lose to Katherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond. Pinter would receive the first of two Oscar nominations for writing, but he too would lose to On Golden Pond. If you have a subscription to HBO Max, you really should give it a shot. Peter Weir's Gallipoli was America's first major introduction to Mel Gibson. It's hard today, with all the image problems that come with being an ultra-conservative alcoholic homophobic anti-Semite, but Mel Gibson used to be one hell of an actor, and he absolutely shines as an Australian army enlistee who gets caught up in the brutal Gallipoli campaign during World War I. It's still, to this day, one of Peter Weir's best films, and it's currently available to stream on Amazon Prime. John Irving's Ghost Story is an absolute must-watch for fans of Ghost Stories and features four of cinema's greatest actors, Fred Astaire, Melvin Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and John Houseman. Based on the novel by Peter Straub, the four acting legends play members of the Chowder Society, an informal men's club who get together each week to share tales of horror. After the passing of one of the men's sons, they try to unravel what happened, believing it may have something to do with the mysterious death of a woman one of the men was supposed to marry many years earlier. Most contemporary reviews were not kind to the film, although it would get high marks from Roger Ebert, and it has become something of a cult classic today, even though it was the third highest grossing horror film of the year. You can rent it for three ninety-nine on most major streaming services. Dusan Makavejev's Montenegro was a Swedish-black comedy from the Serbian filmmaker, his first movie in English, which told the story of a bored American housewife in Sweden who discovers herself when she is separated from her husband during a business trip in the Balkans. The film competed for the Palme d'Or at the 1981 Cannes Film Festival and was expected to be an Oscar nominee for the Best Foreign Language Film Award. It did not get nominated. If you can find it someday, since it's currently not available to stream, you really should check it out. Louis Mall's My Dinner with Andre, which was essentially a film play where two friends, actor Wallace Shawn and theater director Andre Gregory, talk about theater and life and everything in between, over the course of a dinner one night at a Manhattan fine restaurant. The film, produced for less than half a million dollars, was made with the assistance of B-movie specialist Troma Films with future Toxic Avenger director Lloyd Kaufman acting as the production manager. The film would not only gross ten times its budget, but it would become something of a cultural touchstone over the years, parodied or celebrated by such television shows as The Simpsons, Frasier, Community, and Rick and Morty. Its success, helped by Roger Ebert declaring it as the best movie of the year on his SNCC preview show with Gene Siskel, would catapult Sean from a barely known actor and playwright to a much-beloved character actor. You don't know who Wallace Shawn is by name? It's not a problem. All it's going to take is one word from one of his 100-plus film and television roles to place him front and center in your mind. Inconceivable! My Dinner with Andre is currently available to stream on the Criterion Channel and HBO Max. Glenn Jordan's Only When I Laugh Is a not very good Neil Simon adaptation of a not very good Neil Simon play. Notable today for being the fourth time actress Marsha Mason would star in a movie written by her then husband, Simon, and for being an early film role for Kevin Bacon before his breakout the following year in Barry Levinson's Diner. Mason plays an alcoholic Broadway actress who tries to stay sober while dealing with the problems of her teenage daughter, played by Christy McNichol. Mason, along with co-stars James Coco and Joan Hackett, would be nominated for acting Oscars for their work in the film. And Coco would become the first-ever performer to be nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Raspberry Award for the same role in the same film in the same year. It's available to stream on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out. Then there's Peter Bogdanovich's They All Laughed, which I will spend more time talking about on the next episode of our ongoing Orphan series movies that represented the only release from their distributors. The film was a romantic comedy featuring Ben Gazzara, Audrey Hepburn, and John Ritter, and would have been a fantastic calling card for Playboy Playmate Dorothy Stratton had she not been murdered by her soon-to-be ex-husband shortly after the film fit a shooting in the spring of 1980. But again, we'll talk about that movie more in two weeks. John Battam's Whose Life Is This Anyway?, which thanks to its pedigree as a screen adaptation of a popular and successful Broadway play and the casting of Richard Dreyfuss and John Cassavetes was expected to be both a big hit and a major awards contender. The film about a sculptor who becomes paralyzed after an auto accident and fights with the hospital administration for his right to die would gross only slightly more than half its $13 million budget and it would not receive any nominations from any major critics group or the Academy. It's not a great film, but if you're a fan of either actor or Christine Lottie, who gets her first major supporting acting role here, it just might be worth the $1. ninety-nine rental fee from Apple TV. And the final movie I'm going to highlight in this section of the show is something that had been playing around the country for most of 1981, a special event that would bring people back to the movies, sometimes, Sometimes, for the first time in decades, French filmmaker Abel Gance's 1927 nearly 7-hour epic Napoleon had gone virtually unseen between 1929 and 1977 when film historian and preservationist Kevin Brownlow began a 3-year project to restore the movie, a rumination on the life and battles of the French emperor's early life. Brownlow had originally seen the film in his youth in the 1940s when he discovered two millimeter reels of film at a street market in his native England, which would give the young boy's life focus and become the holy grail of his life's work. Brownlow would scour the earth for elements for the film, and in August 1979, he would present to the Telluride Film Festival a four-hour and 55-minute version of the film, complete with its final act in Polyvision, a specialized film format Gantz created specifically for this movie, which would find the director placing three cameras side by side by side to film an image that, when projected, would have a total aspect ratio of 3.99 to 1. Polyvision would be copied somewhat in the 1950s for the film process Cinerama, although both Polyvision and Cinerama would have the same projection issues of not being able to make the joins between projectors seamless. And for most of the film's life, distributors would only send theaters the center screen portion of the movie, so most people who did see the movie before 1980 didn't get to see it as the director originally intended. Gantz would be in attendance for that first restoration screening in Colorado in August 1979 at a specially constructed space for this screening, appropriately named the Abel Gantz Open Air Cinema, which the festival still uses to this day. Gantz would spend the first hour watching the film with the audience until it got too cold for the 89-year-old filmmaker to stay. He would watch the rest of the film from his hotel room overlooking the outdoor cinema. Francis Ford Coppola would be amongst those seeing the restored film in Telluride, and he would team with Brownlow to re-edit the film back down to four hours, add a new score by his Oscar-winning composer father Carmine Coppola, and release it to special locations in major markets starting with the 5,960-seat Radio City Music Hall in New York City on January 23rd, 24th, and 25th, 1981. All three shows were sold out within an hour of tickets going on sale. Gantz was back in France in ill health and could not make the shows in New York. But on the second night of shows, a telephone was brought onto the stage after the end of the screening. The audience was informed that Gantz was listening on the other end and wanted to know what they had thought of his film. The audience erupted into an ovation of cheers and applause that would last nearly seven minutes. In fact, the acclaim surrounding the film's restoration and revival would bring a much belated recognition and renaissance to Gance's work as a master of cinema that he had not received throughout his career, which he was able to enjoy until his passing in November of 1981. Throughout 1981 and 1982, Napoleon would show in large auditoriums like Radio City Music Hall and Los Angeles' 6,700 seat Shrine Civic Auditorium, where the Academy Awards were regularly held between 1988 and 2001, because most of the movie palaces that could have held that many people at the same time had long since disappeared. With the discovery of more than a half hour of previously missing footage by the Cinematheque Francaise in 1982, Brownlow would do another restoration of the film, not only adding this quote-unquote new footage back into the film, but returning the hour of footage removed at the insistence of Coppola in 1980. The now five-and-a-half-hour version would premiere at the Cinémathèque Française in Paris in 1983. In 2016, Brownlow and Gantz's film were the subject of a BBC Radio 4 program about the historian's 50-year quest to restore the film and why he was continually searching for nearly two hours of missing scenes. In January 2021, it was announced that Brownlow, with the support of the Cinematheque Française, the National Center for Cinema and the Moving Image in Paris, and Netflix, that Brownlow was deep into a final restoration of the film, the original nearly seven-hour version of the film that Gantz had first presented at the Apollo Theater in Paris in May of 1927 which was expected to be completed by the end of this year. Now, say what you will about Netflix, but between helping to restore Orson Welles's long-lost The Other Side of the Wind and the original seven-hour cut of Gantz's Napoleon, at least one powerful person at the company cares something about movies enough to put some serious coin into a project that they can't possibly expect to profit from. And finally, before we go today, I'm going to give you some of the other movies that you could have seen in theaters or drive-ins during Christmas week 1981, including such holdovers from the past year, like the comedy classic 9 to 5, which had opened more than a year earlier, John Landis's American Werewolf in London, Clint Eastwood's comedy Any Which Way You Can, which had also opened the previous Christmas season, the William Hurt-Kathleen Turner erotic drama Body Heat, the Burt Reynolds-led cannibal Run." the Ringo star led comedy Caveman, Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams, the Jack Lemmon, Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas drama The China Syndrome, which had been paired with Absence of Malice at drive-in screenings, even though that film had originally opened nearly three years earlier, the horror sequel Halloween two, Robert Altman's live-action musical comedy version of the Popeye cartoons, featuring Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall, the Jacqueline Bessette-Candice Bergen drama Rich and Famous, the Bill Murray comedy Stripes, and Luis Valdez's exceptional Zoot Suit. And because Christmas landed on a Friday that year, you could have also seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Shock Treatment, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Dawn of the Dead, Heavy Metal, Quadrophenia, The Song Remains the Same, Gimme Shelter, Wizards, Airplane, or Kentucky Fried Movie at theaters that ran Midnight Movies. And with that, we'll leave the Christmas 1981 season at the movies. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for being a loyal listener to the show for hopefully the past two and a half years. We'll be back in two weeks for our first show of 2022, in which we'll be returning to our Orphaned film series. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Good night.